Well, here we are back again in the book of James, and today's message is entitled, How to Bake Humble Pie. Uh, James, you recall from last week, has been picking us up by the ears and warning us about worldliness. In chapter four of this book, James has been pressing up against our value system and challenging it. He's contending that our pursuits and our pleasures uh, be in line with the word and the will of God. He is challenging the whole concept of the world, a system that cheerfully and completely leaves Jesus Christ out of everything. And we said last time together, relative to this world system, that a Christian is in a boat. And it's not a problem when that boat is in the water, but it becomes a huge problem when the water is in the boat. Jesus said that we would be in the world, but Jesus warned us and commanded us not to be of the world. That's what we saw last time. And the verses before us this morning, verses 5 to 10, to press that metaphor of the boat in the water and the water in the boat, verses 5 to 10 are going to give us a bailing bucket. If we have been taking on water, if we have been taking the world's system's view into how we do life, then these verses are going to give us a bailing bucket to bail the water out of our boats and to cease being worldly. And what we're going to see this morning is that in the eight ways or decisions in the text, they are going to all promote humility. Because humility is the best bailing bucket if the water of the world is in your boat. If you sense that you are worldly and you want to repent, the best way to get the water of the world out of your boat is to use a bailing bucket called humility. And all eight of our points this morning are going to help us to deliberately choose to be humble. So let me overview what these eight uh, items are after I read our passage. James 4, 5 through 10. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives us a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So very quickly, let me overview. There are eight decisions to choose humility in this, these verses. There are, are eight ways to get to humility. There are eight choices that we can make to become humble and in so doing, to bail the water of the world system out of our boats. The first of these truths, in an overview fashion, accept God-given grace. I see that in verse 6. Second, submit ourselves to God. I see that in the first part of verse 7. Three, resist the devil, still in verse 7. Four, come near to God, the first part of verse 8. Wash your hands, 
the second part of verse 8, and purify your hearts, the third part of verse 8, and 7, grieve or be miserable over your sins, that's verse 9, and last of 8, lower yourselves before God. I see that in verse 10. So quickly, in the time we have this morning, I want to unpack these eight things that are ways to humility. And when we get to humility, we bail the water of a world system that cheerfully and completely leaves Jesus Christ out of everything out of our boats. Number one, accept God-given grace. Accept God-given grace. I see that in verse six. But he gives a greater grace Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What kind of grace we have here in this verse is saving grace and keeping grace. We have unmerited favor to forgive our sins and adopt us into God's family and give us heaven as a gift, but we also have God's grace that keeps us secure in that salvation. Once saved, always saved, we believe. The Bible teaches. And this Grace, to use an acrostic, is God's riches at Christ's expense. G for God's, R for riches, at has an A, Christ has a C, and expense. God's riches at Christ's expense is grace. Or getting what we don't deserve, that's positive. Unmerited favor. These are all definitions of grace. And God gives such grace to the humble. God opposes the proud Christian and doesn't promise grace to a Christian who is proud. What we could say about this grace that is both saving and keeping is that it is a sanctifying influence. We have a sanctifying grace. Grace that a born-again Christian has while on his journey toward glorification. Grace that a born-again woman has from conversion to ultimate likeness with Christ. We have grace for the journey to the degree that we're humble. Sanctifying grace is divine help and favor or assistance in all of the challenges of Christian living, which are many. Now, we know that we are talking here about sanctifying grace or divine help or assistance for the challenges of the Christian life because look at the contrast that verse 6 sets out. But he gives greater grace... Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, contrast, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but he is giver of grace to the humble. In other words, the proud gets opposition, but the humble gets grace. Let me say that again. The proud believer gets opposition to wake them up. The humble Christian gets help. Sanctifying grace helps us. It assists us. It blesses us. And so it's obvious as the nose on my face this morning that we all should accept such grace. We should welcome it. We should receive it with thanks and praise to God who gives it. And we should not forget it. We should not forget God's gracious help. And keeping The fact of God's gracious help in mind keeps us humble. I'm told that best-selling author Alex Haley, who many years back now wrote the book Roots, 
has a picture of a turtle on a fence post in his office. Someone came into Mr. Haley's office and saw the picture and said, what's, what's the story with that? He goes, it reminds me that no turtle gets on top of a fence post except he got help. You are what you are. You have what you have because you've gotten divine help. Grace. Never forget it. If you want to be humble, then accept God's sanctifying grace for your daily walk of life. There's a second way to humility in the passage, and it is this. Submit ourselves to God. Submit ourselves to God. That's what the first part of verse 7 clearly says. Submit, therefore, to God. When we submit ourselves to God, we are on the way to humility. Submit, as I've taught you before, is a compound verb in the New Testament Greek. Hupotasso. Hupo in Greek means under. Tasso means to stand. So to be submitted is to stand under someone. Stand under someone. It's a choice to stand under Christians generally are to submit and stand under each other. Wives are to submit by choice to their Lord God and to their husbands, to stand under the Lord and to stand under their husbands. Husbands are to stand under the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, according to James 4-7, Christians of all ages and all marital statuses and all walks of life and all spiritual gifts, Christians are all to stand under God. We are to choose to humble ourselves, to stand under Christ, every one of us. And we are to do this gladly. We are to do this decidedly. We are to do this consistently. We are to do this when it's convenient. We are to do this when this is inconvenient. We are to do this when we're understood for doing it, and we're to do this when we're misunderstood for doing it. This is a big step toward humility, to submit ourselves to stand under God. As a schoolboy, George Washington wrote in his school exercise book, Play Not the Peacock. Play Not the Peacock. It was a self admonition to not be proud. As a young boy, George Washington had it in firm focus Play Not the Peacock. Someone has wisely said, the branch that bears the most fruit is bent lowest to the ground. Think about that. The branch that bears the most fruit is bent to be lowest to the ground. 7a, submit, therefore, to God. If you want to be humble, and I trust you do this morning, submit yourself to God. Choose to stand under God there's a third way to humility in our passage, and it is this. Resist the devil. Resist the devil. I see that in the second part of verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The verb tense here with resist suggests the need for a decisive and an urgent resistance. A decisive and an urgent resistance to the devil. It's this way. 
we have to acknowledge Satan's reality and Satan's plan. And we have to hate both. We're known by who we love and we're known by who we hate. We're to love God and we're to hate Satan. It's like a person who comes down with the virus, the HIV virus. They must acknowledge that there is such a virus. They must face the fact they have such a virus. And then they must resist it. They must oppose it. That's using medication. That's using doctor's visits. Diet, perhaps. Prayer, if this person with HIV is a believer. But the opposition to HIV is rooted in the person's decided, decided resolve to fend off the virus. There's no cure for it, but to hold it at bay. It's a choice of life over death. It's to select activity over passivity with the virus in your body. By the way, this Thursday, the annual HIV AIDS worship service is going to be held here in NASA. I plan to attend to support families who are contending with the virus and with AIDS. And so part of humility is to resist the devil because the devil is not passive. He's active. And we mustn't adopt with the devil a wait-and-see stance. We'll just wait and see if Satan's truly a liar. We'll wait and see if Satan's truly an accuser. We'll wait and see if Satan is truly a murderer. And then, then we'll decide whether we resist him. No. The scriptures tell us he's those things. And the scriptures call us in this verse to resist him. Resist the devil. And it says he will flee from you. Resisting is taking your stand against in the full armor of God. Resisting the devil is refusing to be knocked down or tackled by the accusing, lying, killing enemy of God and the enemy of the church. And what can we expect? If in the resources that God gives to us, that we actually do make an effort to resist the devil. What can we expect? We can expect that God says he'll flee from you. That's encouraging. It doesn't say he might flee from you. It says he will flee from you. That's encouraging. Satan only keeps attacking when Christians aren't resisting. Just like a predator, Satan hits on the distracted Christian or the sleeping Christian or the discouraged Christian or the Bibleless Christian or the prayerless Christian. Satan won't harass the resisting child of God. Instead, Satan will hurry off. Here's a thought worth pondering from Pastor John MacArthur. Quote, all people are either under the lordship of Christ or the lordship of Satan. There's no middle ground. Those who transfer their allegiance from Satan to God will find that Satan will flee from them. He is a defeated foe. My father-in-law, 
preacher, pastor for over 50 years, 92 years old, often says, and praise to God, thank you that Satan is on a tether. He can only do so much. God has put Satan on a tether, a rope. And just like he couldn't kill Job, God didn't give permission for that, but God gave a slack to him to harass Job. Whose lordship are you under? It's an on-off switch. Either you're under the lordship of Jesus and that turns off the lordship of Satan, or you're under the lordship of Satan and that turns off the lordship of Jesus. Who's, who is your lord? There's a fourth way to humility and to the huge blessing of Psalm 25.9, which is the key verse for this uh, Christian Counseling Center Sunday. Psalm 25.9 says, He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. There's a fourth way in the text to humility, and it is come near to God. The first part of verse 8 tells us that. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. To me, this is absolutely, fantastically remarkable to come near to God, to have the possibility to come near to God, to have the invitation to come near to God. It's remarkable. When Adam and Eve were untainted by sin before Genesis 3, they did this. They came near to God. There they were in the Garden of Eden, and they walked with God, and they talked with God in the cool of the evening, and they weren't afraid or awkward. They just enjoyed God's fellowship and presence. And yes, God enjoyed their fellowship and their presence. But after sin polluted the human race and our planet as well, very few people even dared to attempt to come near to God. Moses tried. God hid him in the cleft of the rock crevice to protect him from being consumed by the glory of God. Israel as a nation tried. God instructed them to build a special tent and then later an ark inside that special tent and Israel as a nation tried to get close to God again, and God gave them the blueprints for the temple with the Holy of Holies, and priests took turns going into the Holy of Holies, one approach per lifetime for the priest, and the priest who got to go in there had two things put on him, a bell on the garment, his garment's hem and a rope tied around his ankle. The bell told those outside the Holy of Holies if he was still alive and moving, and the rope was a way to pull him out of the Holy of Holies if God struck him dead. The two Marys at the Easter tomb tried to come near to God, but God forbid them from clinging to his nail-pierced, resurrected feet. Coming near to God <laughs> is quite the concept. Verse 8, draw near to God. James 4, 5 contends that we should decisively and urgently come near to God, and as we do, God won't hide us or show us his back. He won't tell us to build a tent or an ark, and God won't have us build a temple, and he won't staff it with professional approachers. God won't strike us dead, and God won't forbid us from touching him, as we sang in our chorus this morning. Quite the contrary, God will actually, God will actually come near to us. Wow. The second phrase of verse 8 is amazing. He will draw near to you. Some years ago, in 1998, that's quite a while ago now, Prince Char the Prince of Wales, Charles, 
was in Whistler, British Columbia on a ski vacation with his young sons, William and Harry. Now, let me ask you, back then, if you had been in Whistler at that time at the same ski resort, would you have tried to sit beside Prince Charles in the same chairlift up the mountain after skiing? If you would have had the audacity to do that, would Prince Charles have moved over on the ski lift seat and hugged you warmly? <laughs> no. I don't think so. And if you tried to get closer to the prince, his bodyguards would have tackled you and sent you away to the police station. But what if the young William and the young Harry wanted to share the same chairlift with the prince? Would that have been okay? And if they had gotten on the same chairlift bench with the Prince of Wales, and they had slid themselves over to rest their tired heads on his chest, would he have affectionately responded by moving his arms around them to hug them and to hold them? Absolutely. He's their dad. Sure he would have snuggled up to them. Their mother is dead and gone. It's not amazing that an earthly prince would hug his sons, but it is totally amazing that the king of kings would draw near to repentant sinners like us. An important and a precious step in baking humble pie and getting to humility and bailing out the world from our boat is to pursue an intimate love relationship with our heavenly father. So what have we seen so far? What are the decisions or the ways to humility? Number one, accept God-given grace. Number two, submit ourselves to God. Number three, resist the devil. And number four, come near to God. There's a fifth way to humility in the text. It's wash our hands. Wash our hands. I see that in verse eight. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. What does that mean? Why do we wash our hands before meals? because our hands handle a lot of life between meals. And handling a lot of life is dirty work. We sinners are to wash our hands because we live a lot of life between church services Sunday to Sunday. Between now and the next time you gather with other believers here to publicly worship Christ, you will sin and so will I. What will we do? when we next sin? Well, really, we have two options. We will do nothing or we will confess. We will do nothing or we will confess. If we do nothing, we get proud, worldly, dirty hands. And the longer we do nothing about our sin, the more proud, the more worldly, and the more dirty our hands will get. But if... But if we confess our sins, then God is faithful, not fickle, just, he has a basis for doing it, to forgive us our sins. And this is like hand washing. It's like hand washing. Pride and worldliness and dirt all go down the drain as you agree with God and call your sin, sin. It's being humble. 
There's a sixth way to humility in the text. It's purify our hearts. Purify our hearts. I see that in verse 8 near the middle. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. What does the piano teacher want in her student? Focus, practice, determination, diligence. The piano teacher wants a student who asks, why can't I become a great piano player? On the other hand, the piano student who continually asks him or herself, why can't I quit piano, is defeated before they even really start. Put it another way, the piano teacher wants a student who is pure of heart toward the piano. Having a pure heart translates into commitment, effort, concentration, and loyalty when it comes to the piano or when it comes to righteousness. You have a pure heart when it comes to righteousness if you have a commitment to it, an effort toward it, a concentration on it, and a loyalty for it. Yes, the pure heart is focused, committed, industrious, loyal, determined, and diligent. The pure heart elevates the motives, the thoughts, and the desires of the Christian with such a heart. Will you please notice that a pure heart is a choice we are to make? A pure heart is a choice we are to make. Do you doubt that? If you Doubt that, I ask you, why would James 4, verse 8, command, purify your hearts, you double-minded? Unless double-minded Christians can choose renewed motives, thoughts, desires, and loyalties. Unless a double-minded Christian can choose a pure heart. Back to the piano. Piano Proficiency involves purity of one's heart toward the piano, but humility involves purity of one's heart to God. Well, our humble pie is coming along nicely. We're almost finished. The last two steps or ways or decisions in making humble pie and getting to humility to bail the water of the world system that cheerfully and completely leaves Jesus Christ out of everything is Grieve our sins. Grieve our sins. Verse 9. Be miserable. That's another translation. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, M-O-U-R-N, mourning, and your joy to gloom. Hmm. Humble Christians are broken Christians. Have you been broken yet? Every one of us has to be broken to be fixed. Humble Christians are broken Christians. You don't want to be worldly? Then be miserable over your sins. You don't want to be worldly? Then grieve your sins. Now we have some words in this verse that you think we more in the funeral home than the church. Be miserable. Grieve, mourn, weep, gloom. Again, I say it. Humble Christians are broken Christians. They are believers who have been rocked to the core by their own capacities to sin. 
Matthew 5, verse 4 speaks of this interesting reality. In his Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus taught, quote, blessed, literally happy, are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Proud Christians are unbroken Christians. They are believers who have never been rocked by the, their own capacity to sin. These unrocked children of God need to trade in their laughing for some mourning, according to verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. I'm from Toronto. And some years ago, there was a church in Toronto called the Toronto Airport Blessing. It was part of the vineyard movement. They, were so, they got so charismatic and so unbiblical that the Toronto Blessing was kicked out of the vineyard movement. Part of what the Toronto Blessing got reduced to was believers in worship barking like dogs. Can't make this up. The Toronto Airport Blessing comes into my mind at this point in this sermon, and I ask you, has there been grieving for sin in those who went to the Toronto Airport Blessing? Has there been mourning and wailing and gloom before there was barking and laughter? They also said you were to laugh in worship. By the way, look up laughter in a concordance, and you'll see that laughter almost always in Scripture, Old and New Testament, is associated with Sin, not worship. That's not to say that laughing is sinful. That's saying laughing in a worship context can be. So these are important questions. Was there any grieving for sin? Was there any mourning and wailing and gloom over sin before there was laughter and barking at the Toronto Blessing? Humble, unworldly Christians grieve their own sins, but proud Christians don't. Solomon wisely wrote the following in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning, M-O-U-R-N, mourning, than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man, and the living should take this to heart. This is staggering. Countercultural truth. This is something. God is saying in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2, that funeral homes are superior to banquet halls because more is learned, more is learned near a casket than on a dance floor. Our sin should sober us. My sin should sober me. And when it doesn't, we step away from the Lord in pride. Humble persons are broken by their own capacity to sin. Are you broken this morning about your capacity to sin? When you see someone else sin, does it ever occur to you to say to God, thank you, but for the grace of God, I would be that person? And if we come to the place that we see someone else's sin and we say, I never do that, that's probably where Satan's wanting to take you most. Eighth and last, baking humble pie. Low, lower ourselves before God. Lower ourselves before God. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. 
Humble yourselves before God. Humility isn't a surprise by the end of this verse and the end of this passage because the previous five verses have given seven very specific ways that Christians can and should choose humility. But what verse 10 unveils anew is that we can actually humble ourselves. We can actually humble ourselves. Humility is to be a reflexive virtue. That is, humility is something which we can decide to do to ourselves. Other people can humble us. I've had that happen many times in my life. And of course, God can humble us either using people or not using people. I've had that happen many times in my life. But even more profound is the scriptural truth that I can humble myself, that you can humble yourselves. We can choose to make ourselves low. We can decide to lower ourselves before God. And of course, when we do that, we follow in our Savior's footsteps of self-humiliation. The incarnation, Christmas, the baptism by John, the scorn of his townspeople in Nazareth, the washing of his disciples' feet, the pre-cross abuse, the cross of shame and torture. Jesus self-humiliated. He humbled himself. You could read on your own time, time is hastening, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So my brother or my sister, do you want to avoid worldliness? Do you want to be humble? You can make that choice that will lower yourself. Here's some examples. Let someone else get the credit. Allow misplaced blame to rest on you. Don't insist on going first. Listen more than you talk. Pray your will be done more than, Lord, please help me. Stop defending your own reputation. Share your material wealth. Be a servant. You know how you know when you're a servant? You don't get angry when someone else treats you like their servant. That's convicting. How do we humble ourselves? How do we lower ourselves before God? We volunteer do something we don't get paid for. We stop putting others down to put ourselves up. We depend on Christ for everything. We say, I can't, but he can. And so the choice is all of ours, to elevate ourselves or to lower ourselves. The world screams, elevate yourself. The word whispers, lower yourself, and the Lord will lift you up. Verse 6 gives us a great promise. With this, I'm soon to close. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We've seen eight decisions that will lead us to humility. Accept God-given grace. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. Come near to God. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts. Grieve your sins. Lower yourself before God. So I don't know about your boat. It's in, it's in the sea, because we're not home to heaven yet. Your boat's in the sea. I don't know about your boat, though. Is the sea in your boat? If the sea is in your boat, and you have to quietly admit that to God in confession of sin, if the sea has been in your boat, you need to start bailing, because no boat sinks instantly. Boats sink gradually. Even the Titanic sank gradually. So if you have the world's water in your boat, bail, be humble. Heavenly Father, cause us to be humble. May we cooperate with that effort that we would not be worldly. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake.
Amen.